I bring you greetings of love in the Lord's name. I have never been here at this church before. I've bumped into a few of you. I recognize a brother we worked with down in Beaumont, Texas, four years ago, something like that. And uh, I think I met a few others, a few other of you, different places. I'm happy to be here this morning. The message I have this morning is a foundational message to what we're celebrating today. This being the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we specifically remember, remember it today. I'd like to go back just a few hours in Jesus' life and experience before this a few days and talk about something that's very foundation to that for Christ and also for us. And uh, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 18. I've entitled the message, uh, Shall I Not Drink It? It's a message about the cup. John 18, I'll make a few comments and we'll read 1 to 14. This is a striking portion of scripture, for in it we read of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Quite a dramatic night scene with lanterns and torches and weapons and soldiers. And a man named Judas Iscariot, a disciple turned traitor. We will read about what Peter thinks is right to do in such a situation. We will also read about what Jesus, in tune and surrendered to God, what he did and how he responds. If you and I were writing the text of our lives, what we wanted to happen in our lives, I doubt very much we would invite those kind of circumstances into our lives. What we see demonstrated by Jesus, the Son of God, is a wonderful submission to the will of his Father in heaven. And what we will consider in this message is a powerful example of what it means to us to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, now get this, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then he asked, then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, and if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away 
to Annas first, for he was a father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. This portion of scripture sets in context our focus on verse 11, where Jesus said in that verse, and he's speaking about a cup. I hope it's okay to have object lessons for adults here too. This morning I was talking about a cup. Jesus spoke about a cup. Not a cup from which we would drink water or soda or milk or something like that, but he's speaking of a cup as a figure of speech of what was coming in his life. We know already from the Word of God that verse 4 I pointed out that Jesus knew what was in his cup. You with me? He knew all things what was going to, what were going to happen to him. He knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. He knew that the Jesus' disciples would desert him. He knew that the chief priests would accuse him. He knew that Pilate would deliver him and he knew ahead in this cup that a few hours hence he was going to die a most agonizing death in the cross. When Jesus spoke about the cup in that verse, he could look in his cup and he knew what was in there. Those things were approved in the mind of God for his son to experience. Those awful things for a man, flesh and blood like us to experience were necessary if Jesus was going to become the captain of our salvation. Jesus saw those things in his cup. He knew why he had come. He was looking forward to the day that we celebrate today. But to get to that spot, he had to accept what was in his cup. We don't find a whitewashed portrayal of Jesus' heart during these hours there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Apostle John records very little what happened in Gethsemane. Luke records in more detail what happened between Jesus coming to the Garden that night and when the betrayer showed up with the soldiers. We need to consider what Luke says about Jesus and his cup. In Luke 22, it records Jesus instructing his disciples to pray. Remember that account? He said, pray here and uh, watch with me. And he goes on a bit further, and Luke says he kneels down and he prays earnestly, saying, verse 42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. He saw what was in there. God, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So God does not hide from our eyes what was going on in Jesus' heart there in the garden. We read it, we've been familiar from this since we were young. But God does not hide from our minds, our emotions, our intellect, what was going on in Jesus' heart at this time. That cup that Jesus beheld was agonizing for him to behold. That sinless, spotless Lamb of God was in agony when he saw what was in his cup. His agony was so great that Luke records that an angel from heaven appeared, strengthening him. You ever think no one's had it quite as bad as you have? I don't know if any of you ever experienced that or not. And, and we'd love for an angel to appear. But an angel did appear to strengthen Jesus. It, it shows how low our level of agony gets compared to what Jesus went through there. Verse 44 of that chapter says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Matthew gives yet other details about Gethsemane. He records Jesus saying to his disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. So can you picture then Jesus going on, kneeling down as Luke records, and then in such agony of soul he falls on his face as Matthew records, and saying, Oh my Father, if it be possible, let possible let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Excuse me. Matthew records Jesus coming back to his disciples, finding them asleep. He wakes them, admonishes them, and, and, and tells them to pray some more. And again he prays, Oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away except for me except I drink it, thy will be done. He returned, found his disciples asleep. So he left them, went back, and prayed again. Matthew records praying the same words. The thing we celebrate today, this was all in preparation for Jesus doing that. The things that were in his cup needed to happen for him to accomplish his will on the earth. We worship him for his purity and for his holiness. I worship the Lord Jesus Christ because what a picture of submission to his heavenly father. We hear the agony in his voice. We perceive something of the horrific vision Jesus saw. And we hear in his his prayer the longing of his heart that if there be, might be some other way, Father. But in the same prayer, he submits his will to the Father. You ever find yourself in that thing? Oh God, this is so awful to behold, but I want your will to be done. That's what Jesus did. It didn't take three weeks or three years or, or 20 years to submit to his Father. He, he poured out his heart to God like God wants us to. And he said, but God, I want your will to be done. That is instructive to me. I hope to us. What Jesus experienced there in the garden is a is just like you take a window and look into a man's soul and see the deep, innermost yearnings of a heart communicating with its maker. And knowing his father's will, as difficult as that steps those steps were going to be, he submits his will to the Father. So Judas shows up with the band of soldiers, he betrays Jesus, and they move to take him. Peter whips out his sword. The Bible says, as he read there, we read there that he smote the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now, I'm not skilled in the matters of carnal warfare, but I don't think for a minute Peter was aiming for the ear. I think he wanted to make that man a foot short at the top. I'll leave that be as it may. But Jesus' words at that point, we often talk about put away your sword, and we talk about non-resistance, and that's good. That's a, there's a lesson there. I think the reason Jesus wanted to have a sword is to demonstrate that we moved on from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth uh, and it's non-resistance. But the part we're looking at this morning, he said, Peter, put your sword away. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus' words indicate that he'd accepted that cup. He'd accepted what was in his cup. Peter, shall not I take the, the cup that my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? That cup of Jesus' suffering was too much for Peter, though. He is going to do what he can to prevent Jesus' arrest, and as we read there, he uses his sword, and Jesus had put it away. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? You know, this is not the first time in Peter's life that he, thinking he is a true friend and a disciple of Jesus Christ, has been brought to realize that in the zeal of the moment, he's actually working against the plan of the Father. 
Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'd like to start reading at verse 13. 13 to 23. Matthew 16, verse 13. And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Then, get this, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That be of men. When Peter answered Jesus, Who do you say that I am? He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was a profound answer. It was a profound confession that Jesus not only wanted Peter to make, but he wants each one of you and I to make that personal confession that Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Jesus respond to that confession of Peter? Verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Why was Simon blessed? Jesus tells us. Jesus told him. Because flesh and blood hath not revealed that truth to you. You say, Peter didn't go to some popular preacher or some radio program or some TV personality or read a big manual. The Holy Spirit had impressed upon him that this man is a son of God. Flesh and blood, people, had not revealed it unto him. So Peter's knowledge and conviction that Jesus was a Christ had come from God through the Holy Spirit. So we observe Jesus blessing and affirming Peter that he was listening to God. That's a whole other message sometime, but I don't think there's anything quite touches the joy that comes into a believer's life when you know you have heard from God and have been obedient to what he spoke to you. It's hard for anything to touch the joy that comes when you know you've heard from God and obeyed. I don't have time for some stories about that, but they're very powerful stories. Verse 21, we read that from that time forth began Jesus to show in his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things with the elders and chief priests and be killed and raised again the third day. So we know that Peter had embraced in his heart the reality that this man is the Messiah. This is the man we've been looking for. But there is no room in Peter's mind for a Messiah to suffer as Jesus told them he was going to suffer and be killed. 
we would say in English in America today, no way, Jose, this ain't going to happen. Sorry, English teachers, for the bad English. The Bible says Peter took Jesus. Dwight, if you were sitting up here, I'd ask you to get up, and I would demonstrate what that meant. We don't often, we read across this, we don't think, but he took him, he actually laid his hands on him. Can you picture Peter getting a hold of Jesus' shoulders and looking at his face saying, this shall not be unto you, I don't want this ever happen to you. He took Jesus and began to rebuke him for what Jesus had said was going to happen to him. Peter did not want to see Jesus go through these things. And the specter of what Jesus was said was going to happen to him so aroused Peter's emotions that he blurted these things, blurted these things out. Sorry. I'm going to put that a little further away. Many of you, probably with me, were shocked when you first read and first understood when Jesus responded to Peter. Were you? Get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, that is strong language. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus had blessed Peter. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed these things. You've been listening to God. And a few verses later, he said, Get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Have you ever looked up what that word offense means in the Greek? It means, you look it up in your Strong's and Chords, it means a trap stick. Now you fully understand it, right? I had to dig a little deeper. You might ask, what did a trap stick mean? An illustration from Canada, we were up there in mission work. One way I've seen this done is when the Native American people would trap a, a rabbit, snare a rabbit, they would take a tall, long, a tall, thin sapling, a live sapling, they'd pull it over and they'd notch it in the, against the trunk of another tree. So that the tip of the, the sapling is now pointed toward the ground. Are you with me? And then take a piece of brass snare wire and they make a round circle and they tie it to that bent over sapling and they have that circle placed right where the tracks in the snow indicate that a bunny rabbit hops along there. They put a few sticks along the side so they make sure the bunny rabbit stays in the same trail. And bunny rabbit comes hopping along and his head goes through the snare and it tightens around his shoulders. He starts struggling. And very shortly, the uh, stick that's notched into the sides of the tree snaps loose and jerks up in the air, and the rabbit dies quickly, and he's out of the reach of predators who like to eat and munch on fresh rabbit. Peter, that offense that Jesus talked about, Peter had set a trap, a trap stick for Jesus to turn him from doing the will of the Father. That was why Peter was such an offense. Jesus saw that what he had said and what Peter was urging Jesus to do was actually trying to turn Jesus from accepting this cup and drinking it. Now, I don't believe Peter had any notion at all that he was working against God's will for what he had just rebuked Jesus. This shall not be to you. I don't want this ever to happen to you. After all, don't friends desire good circumstances for their friends, pleasant prospects. We might even in reading this think we should be doing what Peter did to his friends to our friends, saying such things. But Jesus said the way it said it the way it really was. He said, Peter, 
You do not savor the things that be of God. You savor the way, or you cherish the way a man looks at things. Savorist in the Greek means in the exercise of your mind to be disposed in a certain direction. Peter, the way your mind is geared, the way you're disposed to think, you're thinking as a man thinking, you're not thinking as God thinking. And uh, do you think you think the way a man does? And so, yes, it is strong language that Jesus used to Peter. Thou art an offense to me. Peter, what you've said is actually an encouragement to me to turn from accepting what God has ahead for me. So back to our text in John chapter 18. Peter, Peter in his love for the Lord and zeal for his friend, has tried to defend Jesus against such mistreatment there in, garden, in the garden. And Jesus tells Peter, put away your sword. Peter, the cup, again, we're speaking about a figurative cup. He said, the cup that my father has given me, shall I not drink it? I don't know how it is with you. I know how it is with me. I trust I'm speaking to younger ones and older ones, but many of you already have seen things in your cup that are difficult to behold. Can anybody identify with me? And oftentimes there's a temptation when we see things are in our cup to find who to blame for it. Correct? If so-and-so would have said that, if so-and-so would have handled that differently, it would have taken care of my, my problem, whatever. We tend to think that the things in our cup are not of God or that God somehow, they slip past God's approval process. But Jesus said, the cup which my Father hath given me. So what was Jesus saying about his cup? When we think of the betrayer being in his cup, we see evil men plotting what they're going to do with Jesus. We observe Satan moving hearts and minds in the plot against Jesus. And we might read those things and fail to see that God, knowing those things, all those things, either ordained or permitted them in the life of his own beloved son for the ultimate good of the kingdom of heaven. Those things in Jesus' cups, so difficult to be, in Jesus' cup, so difficult to behold, were necessary for him, Jesus Christ, to become the captain of our salvation. We have a lot to learn, at least I, this poor man does, in Jesus saying, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Have you thought about it? I guess I can say this here, this was 10 or 12 years ago. This was, the thought about the cup was something that stood out in one of my devotions. And the message gave out of that, and I've never preached a sermon so often in my life as I've preached this message, and it still speaks to me. The things that are in my cup, how am I going to view them? Am I going to kick at God, kick at his shins, or complain to God? You know, today, I don't know how many, if you get the companion's paper here or not, but a year or so ago I read a story on the need to forgive God. I don't know if you ever, any of you read that story or not. I've heard across Benedict pulpits that sometimes you, sometimes you just need to forgive God for what he has allowed into your life. Such an irreverence. Because if we feel we need to forgive God, we are charging God with wrongdoing. And we're going down the same path as Satan did where he sets himself up being a judge of God. I have a lot to learn from Jesus saying, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, he asked him, 
Peter that question. Peter, this cup is from my father. Are you saying I shouldn't drink it? Do you want to keep me from drinking it? The burden on bringing this message that God has laid in my heart is that it is centered on bringing us to awareness of what is in our cup. The drinking that cup. And perhaps even more deeply, what is in our heart toward the one who ordained or permitted those things to be in my cup. What do we see in our cup? What do we see in the circumstances of our lives in our cup? I know a few of you. I'm learning a few more. Enjoy being with Curtis's family last night. Kind hospitality. Enjoyed seeing some of you up in our church, and I think I'm sorry to be able to connect some names and faces. But the unchangeable things in our lives, what is our attitude towards them? None of us, and I can say this with 100% certainty, none of us had any say in what family we were going to be born into. Agreed? Are you not sure, some of you? Are you agreed? We had no choice in what family we were born into. Uh, We had no control over being born into a family with a good name or with a name that signified a poor, poor reputation. None of us. We do have a great deal to do with what reputation our family name becomes, but the name that was given to us, we've had no control over that. But frankly, I wonder sometimes in heaven if those who have grown up in a family where they had a lot of things against them and they step out and believe Christ and follow Him, I think that star is going to shine so much brighter than mine is going to. I appreciate such people. Learn to know them. You know my name is Stauffer. I was at meetings in Pennsylvania one time. This man walked out to me and said, What's your name? I said, Bob Stauffer. He said, That's a good name. Well, <laughs> That feels sort of good. And I said, why do you say that? He said, that name goes back to the old world. And there were staffers of nobility there. And it's generally been a name with a good reputation. And well, that made me feel sort of good. And thank you. I, I appreciate hearing stories like that. Some years later, I was at a gathering of ministers in a state. And I'll let the state and the place, location remain unnamed. And following, we wanted to take some apples along back to Minnesota. Those apples don't do very well up in our country. And so in this particular state, after the meetings were over, this my host, we got in his van and we went around from one orchard to another and no one has had apples. And one farm, he knew that they had had some apple trees there and he pulled in here and pictured me. I'm in a minivan. I'm in the right-hand seat. My host is in the left seat. There's a barn on the left and three men repairing the barn roof. The house is on the right. And he stopped and he rolled down his window and he knew the men. And uh, they said, who's with you? And he said, Bob Stauffer. And instantly I knew something was wrong. And a few seconds later he said, but this one's okay. And so a few minutes later we drive out the driveway. I said to my host, I said, can I ask what that was all about? Well, there was a Stauffer family not far from where we were that had a poor reputation because of this and this and this. So maybe the Lord wanted to play the level, level the playing field in my mind. I don't think more highly of myself than I ought to think. But we had no say what name we were given. We do have a big, a great deal to do with what our name becomes. 
None of us had any say in what the color of our skin would be. Do you believe me? How many are in agreement with that? No, no say at all. I have a little granddaughter adopted from California, Los Angeles. She's a mixture of Mexican and Crow, Indian. Kinza. Love her dearly. Reuben and Judy's first adopted child. And their second adopted child they had to adopt because of physical limitations in my daughter. Their second adopted child was Kevin from the streets of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He is as black as they come. I love Kevin. I love to snuggle him. And he loves his grandpa too. And I'm the only one he lets rub his little woolly head. Hi. That little boy is a precious gift. And to see what's happening as they are growing up from very, very young. None of us were asked our opinion about what color of hair we would like. My wife and I do farmer's marketing, and we are seeing more and more people every year that show a tremendous dissatisfaction with the color of hair God gave them. I would have never thought in my childhood years, teenage years, that I'd see neon purple and green and orange and stuff like that, but you see it all the time now. And I didn't write this next thing in my notes, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of people today, and not from all age groups now that are not that are dissatisfied with God making them either a boy or a girl. I had a children's meeting Friday up at our Good Friday service, and I asked uh, there was about thirty-five children up front. And I asked them, I said, "I like all. I want to do some counting." And Tim Zook, I want you to help me. So I had all the boys raise their hand, and all the boys, little boys, you know. And up to, what, 10 or 11 years old? And then the girls, the same thing. We had 17 and 14. Praise the Lord! These little children know that they're a boy or a girl. But there are people two and three and five times their ages today that are so confused by the God of this world that they don't know what they are from one morning to the next. Children, God made them male and female. Don't ever forget it. You're going to be faced with these things. People aren't satisfied. It's like the clay on the potter's wheel saying, God, why have you made me this way? The things in our cup, those, our gender was God's design. Let's cherish it. We did not get to decide if we were born into a family where food and clothing were plentiful or if to get those things we had to work from dawn till dusk every day. We didn't get to say that, to choose that. We had no say if our parents would be loving parents who cared for us as parents ought to, according to the precepts of Scripture, or if our parents were drug addicts or alcoholics, or our conception was outside the bonds of holy matrimony. None of us had anything to say about that. And I hope that shapes our opinion there's too many things, and I'm not going to go there today, but there's too many things in the world where people had no say in how they were born or what they were born into, and uh, somehow they become second or third class of importance to us. No, no, no. We did not get to choose our genetic makeup. I've been a pretty healthy critter all my life. I have some issues recently. But I knew as a young man, early teens, a girl in our Eunice Messler, a godly young lady in Mannheim Church, who died of a heart issue in her mid-teens.
What time am I to be over? I don't know how many of you know Anna Lee. Do Anna Lee, my Reuben and Judy's adopted daughter, their third child. I guess they're not quite as, they felt down her, she's passed away, it's not as quite as important to camouflage her life story that ho- they hoped someday she could tell. But she was born, she'd been perfectly normal two weeks before birth. And then something very, very tragic happened to the mother. Their own mother almost died, and little Annalie within her. The technical medical term was placenta abruption. Almost died from oxygen deprivation. And so when Reuben and Julie adopted her, they knew that she would not be normal. They thought, well, maybe she'll just be a year or so behind. That child lived three years. Her adopted siblings loved her. Her parents loved her dearly. We loved her. She never ate a spoonful of food in her life. Always fed with a tube. She couldn't talk. She could make some noises. She was so weak, she could not crawl on the floor. She could not sit up herself. She couldn't even raise her hands. When you go to pick her up, she could see you, and her eyes would focus sometimes, but she couldn't even raise her hand like a child often does when they want to be picked up. Forty or fifty hospital experiences, many of them crucial. And we wondered, God, what is your purpose for this little life? She's a precious little girl, but she can't say anything. She can't do anything. She just lay there and... We knew two, a little over two years ago that her time was, earth was drawing short. Her parents were aware of it. The ER doctor said there's really not much more we can do for her. You know, we've done what we can. We got to hold her about a week before her passing on the way to a wedding in Ohio and coming back, sitting in Maryville, Indiana at a restaurant, and Judy Texan said, Ali just passed away. So we had a funeral on the way home. But I have to tell you this, because in the last 24 hours of her life, she was unconscious. Held much of that time, but sitting in her little chair on the table at the moment of her passing, she was there, and I've described what she could and couldn't not do, but they said all of a sudden her eyes opened up, looked up, and got this huge smile. She never smiled before. Once in a while you see a little bit of a pensive expression. We think that might be a smile, but she had a broad smile on her face and her arms were up like this and she was gone. That was in Annalise's cup. We would never prescribe those for how you want your daughter or your granddaughter to be born, but God had a purpose in that. You and I had no choice being born into a peaceful country where every man had his cow his house and his vine, her vine. Or being born in a country where any day, hour of the day or night, you know, the bombs or the missiles could come in and exploding. We had no say where we were born and what we would experience. I'm just trying to give us some of the circumstances that we as people find in the cup that our Father hath given us, you and I. So I ask you this morning, what is, and I ask myself, what is our attitude toward the things that we find in our cup? 
And just as important, what is our attitude toward the one who either ordained or permitted those things to be in our cup? How do we speak about the difficult circumstances in our cup? Perhaps just a searching a question is, how do we speak to others about the things that are in their cup? Do we, like Peter, express what seems loving to mankind? This should not be happening to you. This is wrong. I find the need for great care in how I speak about the difficult circumstances in my own cup and those in the life of another person. And how I think and how I speak about the unchangeable things in my cup or in others' cups Another's cup reveals a great deal about whether I think as God thinks or whether I'm minded to think as man thinks, as Peter talk, was talked to by the Lord. Jesus said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? My friend Henry was a strong man until 2009. He lived in Nepal, Ontario. He was a strong man. Proverbs twenty twenty nine says, The glory of young men is their strength. And boy, I tell you what, I'm 71 now, and I see young men, and they can get out there through the, through the firewood, and those days are pretty far in my rearview mirror. In their family's beekeeping operation, they, they don't, don't fool around with the medium honey supers like I use. When they get full, they weigh about 45 pounds. They only use the deeps for everything. Those things weigh north of 90 pounds when they're full. And sometimes six, seven stacked high. I can hardly imagine taking 90 pound boxes off the top of a stack of beehives that fall. And inside one week, Henry lost the use of his legs. He had some dealings with prostate issues and it went into his back and all of a sudden it affected the nerves controlling his legs. And in his words, he said, he said, my legs went blubbery. In a couple days. He spent about a month in the hospital. Obviously had many, many things to think about. I'm sure there was a struggle to learn to accept the thing that had come into his cup. And uh, when Henry came home, I spoke to him about 45 minutes on the phone. I said, Henry, how how do you do now? With your severe limitations, how, how do you face life ahead and what do you do for a living and all that stuff? And I don't think this side of glory, I'm going to forget Henry's answer to me. I needed it. He said, uh, he, was, he told me about being in, in the hospital there. A nurse came in one day and, and she knew his story. She knew what had, he had been like before and how so sudden he had lost the use of his legs. He never did walk without a, a walker after that. And she, and she was going on about it, it being so wrong. A good man like you having to go through this. It's just not right. And Henry told that nurse, he said, Ma'am, he said, God never promised us that we could live out our days in our strength. And it seemed to be a new thought to that nurse. We would like to think we can, and we will, right? We'd like this thing to keep firing at all six or eight cylinders, however many we have, but we're not promised that either. But the nurse agreed with him, you know, God never did promise us that. We would like that. Two or three times in my initial conversation with Henry, he referred to, I quote, this my light affliction. 
And if God saw fit to put in my cup tomorrow, that I would usually use in my legs. I just thinking about that. That would. I don't think I could call it a light affliction, but that's how Henry, in the grace of God, viewed that. His attitude of submission to the physical suffering in his cup was a tremendous encouragement and challenge to me. He since passed away. I right now think of Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer who, because of a doctor's mistake, was made blind in her infancy. If such a thing happened today in Rochester or in whatever these big clinics are that, that work, that doctor would be sued for millions and millions of dollars. Not only for blindness, but for the pain and emotional trauma he caused. Near the end of her life, Fanny Crosby was asked, if you could meet the doctor who made you blind, what would you say to him? How many of you are aware of that question and answer? You've got to hear this. This is near the end of her life. She lived her life in blindness. And she said, if I could meet the doctor who made me blind, I would say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she gave the reason. She said, because if I had seen as other men see, I would have been able to see the things that God has taught me through this affliction. Do you think Fanny accepted the cup her father had given her? It's so easy and it's so popular today to kick, kick against God's shins. I don't have this written down here, but I want to quote some cabinets for a couple, an elderly couple, elderly couple. I guess I'm there now. He was pleasant enough, but she was a bitter, bitter woman. It exuded from her all over. And somehow in the course of our conversation, I made some remark about so grateful to be a child of God and she spat out with perfect bitterness she said I have no time for a God who allowed such things to happen as I've seen in my life she grew up in Hitler's Germany and I'm sure saw things that were horrendous but she she pointed the finger of accusation at God and she stood there and kicked God's sins because God didn't prevent it by his almighty power why doesn't she give some of the credit to Satan for people's turning to darkness and doing evil things? But so easy to kick at God's sin because he could have prevented it. Rather than taking the Lord's example, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Joseph in the Bible had no say in what family he'd be born into. His father Jacob both took advantage of others and was taken advantage of himself. His mother was one of two wives and two maids who bore children to Jacob. Well, you talk about a dysfunctional family. Jealousy, competition, hatred, favoritism. Joseph's own mother died young, perhaps as a result of lying about stealing her father's idols. Joseph had brothers who were violent and cruel in their anger, and Joseph tasted of that. We know the story of mistreatment and abuse by Joseph, by his brothers, by Potiphar's wife. Joseph knew that his brothers meant evil against him. He said those words. But he also came to realize that God had his hand in all of this. And he told his brothers, don't be, don't beat up yourselves too hard in today's language. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much people alive. Joseph had accepted that cup. And I would weep. It's one of you, you meant it 
taken off to Russia there. How do we? Because of the pain and the suffering. But God had his hand in that and saved much people alive. And what a picture. It's even a type of Christ of Joseph accepting the cup of suffering and without bitterness. Two short stories from Haiti. I think this happened out of Kijak. Pastor Paul on Sunday at a certain season of the year, he, at the close of the service, like this in the morning, uh, a group twice, three times this size, he said, now I know today, this is the time of the year that many of you don't have food to eat. Maybe you eat once a day a little bit. And he said, so, you know, it's one thing to go home and sit and wish you had food to eat. He said, we decided we're going to have the church open this afternoon, and if you want to stay and sing praises to God, we're going to do that. And, uh, and he said two-thirds of the group stayed and sang praises to God for his goodness to them because they didn't have food at home to eat. I expect we'll all be going home and eating something and it would be an adjustment for us if we were thrust into a situation where we maybe ate one tiny meal a day. But that was a challenge to me, that those people, they could go home and they could praise God with so little. My son Jonathan, I think he visited you a few weeks back. Some years ago, Jonathan shot himself with an air gun, nail gun, trying to toenail a header in, and a nail went in, hit a knot, turned and came out, flew through the air and stuck him here and severed the tendon that controls this finger. I had the privilege of taking him to Fargo to a clinic and the doctor did what he could. They they were just they they couldn't repair it, it was too far for that, but to try to take care of the where that's joined up in there, that's not really relevant to the story, but while there I was the as he came out of anesthesia I was there and there was one head nurse over this uh, recovery unit. There might have been eight or ten or twelve spokes in this wheel and we were in one of them and and uh, somehow in a conversation, they came in, took Jonah's blood pressure, and the nurse said, and I said, I haven't had my blood pressure taken since I was in Haiti quite some years before that. She said, you've been in Haiti. And so she sent the head, the head nurse over, and a Lutheran lady, every year she takes a group of nurses to Haiti for a week or two weeks to do surgeries on people who can't afford it. And she told me that day about her, her first trip to Haiti. How many have been to Haiti here? You go into that place and you're overwhelmed with the poverty, the trash, the barrenness of some of those parts of the country, just rocks and dirt and dust. And and she said the first time she was down there, she was in the north of Haiti and the barren area, and overwhelmed she was with how poor these people were. And she said she got up the next morning and stepped outside the little compound they were in, and the first thing she heard was one of these Haitian ladies singing, a hymn of praise to God a few houses away. And she said, in my mind was the thought, what do these people have to thank God for? That helps. It helped readjust her thinking. It helped readjust my thinking. We're not promised the good things and easy things we enjoy. We may not always have them. Those things are in their cup. So what is in my cup? What is in your cup? Do we accept the cup our Heavenly Father has given us? Or we'd go through life railing against or complaining about it.
When we see others facing difficult circumstances in their cup, how do we speak about it? Well, I want to learn more about what it means to support others in helping them, encourage them in their drinking a difficult cup. May God help us have the mind of Christ. So I'd like to just close with a note of encouragement. If you find yourself in a having things or seeing things in your cup that are difficult to drink, I commend you to the Lord. Brother all we prayed for you. Just, I prayed for my son. It's difficult to see. The man go through and wanting to find a companion. and That's a whole lot different at 43 and four children than it was when you were 17. I don't know what's in your cup now. But let's pray for you. Let's encourage each other. Let's not say, this is wrong. This should never have happened. Because sometime down the road in glory, we're going to understand more of the why of these things. Job never understood in this life, at least that I can tell from Scripture, the why of what he went through, what he went through. Jesus knows without a doubt the agony that you and I go through when we see things in our cup and we go through the, the drinking of that cup. He knows. We can never say no one understands because that's why he came and became a man. That he can be identified and be our faithful high priest. Let's kneel for prayer.